You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. So we're going to take uh, an unexpected, little unexpected break from Deuteronomy tonight. If you were chomping at the bit for some Old Testament, uh, you'll have to wait. Um, and we're going to travel back again to Matthew chapter 18. If you were here a few Sundays ago, I preached on part of that chapter, and when I preached on this passage a few weeks ago that Sunday, I mentioned that there was more in the chapter than I could ever get through possibly in one message. Uh, That day we looked at the beginning of chapter 18, and tonight we're going to look at the end of chapter 18. So I guess the middle parts will have to wait uh, until I get up here again, whenever that is. So as I said last time when we talked about this chapter, I do believe that the pieces of the entire chapter of Matthew 18... This entire chapter of Jesus' words fit together into a beautiful, one beautiful, complete teaching on biblical conflict resolution and forgiveness. And I gave you an outline of the whole of Matthew 18 that looked like this. It worked perfectly, didn't it? I don't even have to look. I can see. So there's the outline, verses 1 through 4, the need for humility. Then the need for urgency in 5 through 14, the need for propriety and 15 to 20 in the need for forgiveness. So last time we focused on the beginning of the chapter, we talked about biblical humility as the key to resolving conflicts and the beginning of forgiveness. And I said that I believe that Jesus uses the startling word pictures in verses 5, 14, millstones around our necks and limbs being chopped off to show us that our conflicts with others are tiny when compared to the danger of God's judgment on us and on others if conflict is not resolved with urgency. And we also said that uh, verses 15 and 20, although they're best known for their application in church discipline, but that they really present a biblical pattern for approaching conflict resolution in any relationship. That we have, and that when we do choose to lovingly confront someone's sin, the Bible not only has a lot to say about how our heart should be, but also about the right way to approach the situation. And so, finally, what we'll be focusing on tonight the parable of the unforgiving servant in verses 21 to 35 that gives us a shocking story that Jesus uses to drive home what I said I believe is the key principle of Christian forgiveness, and that is this. God expects believers to forgive others in the way that he forgives them. Now, as we learned before, the first thing we have to do in developing an understanding of how we should forgive one another is to understand how God forgives us. And this simplifies defining forgiveness because the Bible says far more about how God forgives people than it does about how people should forgive people. We talked about that last time. But the Bible does have some incredibly important things and even some shocking things to say about how we should forgive others and what it could mean if we don't. And as we get started looking at the passage tonight, I would like you to consider two related questions that we'll come back to a little bit later. And they are these. First question is, what should be said to the person who says, I just cannot forgive? And secondly, what should be said to the person who says, I will not 
forgive? Now, on the one hand, these two questions are quite different. If you won't forgive, that's a matter of the will. But if you can't forgive, that's a matter of ability. And, but both questions are alike in that they both probe how far forgiveness should go. And the implication of the first question is that there are times when forgiveness can be limited by the seriousness of the offense. We think, am I, am I really expected to forgive that, that kind of thing? Is that the sort of thing I can forgive? But the second question also probes the boundaries of forgiveness. And the person who says, I will not forgive, is arguing that some offenses are so serious that they don't deserve to be forgiven. And whether it's because of the seriousness of the offense or the number of times it's been committed, that person is unwilling to forgive. Now the point of this message is to show that based on Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, that people who are unable or unwilling to forgive should be warned in the most serious way possible. And indeed, Jesus taught that if we are either unable or unwilling to offer forgiveness, we should question the reality of our own salvation. Jesus speaks to the limits of forgiveness in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Now, like us, the disciples had questions about just how far forgiveness should go. And as was so often the case, Peter spoke up in verse 21. Read with me. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, Peter accepted that if someone sins against us and later asks us for forgiveness, we should grant the request willingly. But Peter also reasoned that there must be some reasonable limit to how many times we are expected to forgive. And I think he suspected that Jesus would probably be expecting a particularly generous amount of mercy from his disciples. So he guessed high in his mind anyway, right? Seven times. But if Peter thought he was being generous in asking whether we should forgive as many as seven times, he surely must have been startled by Jesus' response in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now the point is not that we ought to forgive someone up to 490 times, for those of you who are the math students in the house, okay? Jesus is obviously using hyperbole. So if you're keeping a tally of how many times that you have forgiven your spouse, Stop it, okay? Jesus' point is that we ought to forgive an unlimited amount of times. You can imagine that if you were to tell your children that they ought to be willing to forgive an unlimited number of times, they would no doubt respond, well, what about, what about in the cases where the offense is really bad? What about if somebody did something really bad to me? And Jesus anticipated this objection and shared a parable to answer it, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time tonight. So pick up with me, if you would, in verse 23, please. Therefore, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now you really have to get into this story if it's going to influence you. Picture in your mind with me who might have played the part okay in this parable we only have to cast three roles all right first we need a rich king right this has to be someone who has a lot of assets he writes off a major loan so he has to be loaded in order to afford to do that right now he's kind at points he initially writes off the debt but he's also just and stern because he comes down hard on the first servant at the end. Think about who would play such a part in this parable. Now second, we need the guy who ends up being the loser in the story. He is the example not to be followed. This guy was not afraid to shamelessly beg before the king, and yet he turned in an instant and was ruthless. So picture sort of a weaselly schemer kind of man. And finally, the third character in this story is an ordinary, hardworking guy who's had some bad breaks. And by definition, this part would not be played by anyone famous. Just put an average person in the role. So in the parable, the weasel owes the wealthy king a huge amount of money. It's an exorbitantly large amount. Actually, one commentator estimates that it would have been the equivalent of 193,000 years wages. It's such a grandiose amount that no one could ever pay it back. Not ever. And this character certainly cannot. So the king summons this guy who owes him money. And the debtor is begging from the get-go he falls down on his knees and he begs for an extension, just a little more time. And he promises to take care of the debt. Now, can you picture that scene? Now, the king, I think, is a little put out by the whole business. And he's kind of half disgusted by this melodrama of someone falling at his shoes. And he probably shakes him and says, get a hold of yourself. You know, act like a man. But in the end, he has pity on him and saying, hey, 
what's another billion? I'll just write it off, right? I'll just write the debt off. So the Weasley schemer dusts himself off and he flies away, happy as a lark. I mean, he's been forgiven his debt. It's all gone. And on the way home, though, he meets up with, of all people, just an average guy who owes him a few months' wages. And, of course, this debt is nothing in comparison to the astronomical amount he himself had owed a mere ten minutes ago. But he spots him. And he wants what's coming to him, and he wants it now. And the second servant doesn't have it, and there's no way he'll ever be able to get it if he's packed off to debtor's prison. So he falls at the other man's feet and begs for another chance. And this guy, who's just been forgiven a billion-dollar debt, will not even consider giving him a few more days to cough up the cash. He certainly has no intention of forgiving him the debt. And in fact, he calls the authorities and has him arrested. But in due time, however, the guy to whom the money was originally owed finds out about all this, and he cannot believe his ears. He's forgiven a huge sum, but now he hears that this weasel who's been forgiven a billion cannot find it within himself to forgive a paltry amount. So he reneges. He reams out the guy who originally owed him money. He reinstates the once forgiven debt. And he throws his sorry carcass in prison. No mercy. He's stuck there until he can repay the amount, which of course he will never be able to do. Once you, once you see the story, I think Jesus' point becomes clear. Commenter on Matthew, David Turner, summarized it this way. The point is the monstrous inconsistency between being forgiven zillions and refusing to give peanuts. The unforgiving servant does not do for the other what he would like the other to do for him let alone do for the other what the king has already done for him. He hypocritically accepts mercy, but he's not willing to grant it to another. Now, it's very important here, as it is always, that we keep the context of this biblical parable in mind. Peter is asking Jesus, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus responds that we are to forgive 70 times 7. That is an unlimited number of times. Jesus understood that the disciples might think it unreasonable to be expected to forgive so many times. But with this parable, Jesus was teaching them this truth. Whatever someone has done to offend us always, always pales in comparison to what we have done to offend God. The Christian who will not forgive is like someone who will not forgive a few thousand dollar debt when he has himself or herself been forgiven billions. Now, it goes without saying that human beings do horrible things to one another. And the point is not that these are small offenses. 
some of them are huge. They can have life-altering and even lifelong impact. However, they are small in comparison to what we have done to offend God. And that offense required the cross to overcome. Let's go back to the questions that began this message. What should be said to the person who cannot or will not forgive? Now, this isn't a theoretical question. Many people are quite comfortable saying that they will not forgive. Almost 30 years ago now, in a 1988 Gallup poll on forgiveness, 94% of respondents said or indicated that it's important to forgive, but only 48% said that they made it a practice to forgive. I suspect those numbers may have all dropped lower by now. And what should be said to the 46% or more who don't forgive? I think at this point we need to look at the parable in dead earnest. I mean, this is the most serious of subjects. Jesus said that the unforgiving servant would be turned over to jailers to be punished until he could repay the amount. And the word translated jailers here really is better translated as torturers. And given that the unforgiving servant could never repay the huge amount he owed, the deliberate indication of the parable is that he would be eternally tortured. And Jesus' point, I think, is clear. That those who are unwilling or unable to forgive should fear for their salvation. Jesus stressed the importance of forgiveness elsewhere. In Matthew 6, after teaching the disciples to pray, Jesus said this in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. For each of us, I think the thought of what it means to refuse to forgive someone should make us shudder. I mean, if you're listening to this and you say either I cannot forgive or I will not forgive, then I would plead with you to consider the reality of hell more carefully. I mean, are you so willing to unforgive, I mean, so willing to unwilling to forgive that you would choose eternal punishment over forgiveness? Listen to these ominous and honestly terrifying words from a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards that carried the title, The Eternity of Hell's Torments. Now, this isn't scripture, but I do truly believe that Edwards' imagery accurately reflects the truth of scripture on eternal judgment. And anyone who knows Edwards knows that he had a lot to say about that. And those who are unwilling to forgive, I think, should put away your pride for a moment and listen 
closely. Edwards writes this, preached it to his congregation. Do but consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. After you have worn out the age of the sun, moon, and stars in your dolorous groans and lamentations without rest, day and night, or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. After you shall have worn out a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope, but shall know that you are not one whit nearer to the end of your torments. Your souls, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while, will still exist to bear more wrath. Your bodies, which shall have been burning all this while in these glowing flames, shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast through eternity, which will not have been at all shortened by what shall have been past. It's impossible to overestimate the danger of unforgiveness to our own souls. Now, you might respond... Greg, you say that if I won't forgive, I should fear for my soul. Now, this sounds like salvation by works. Was Jesus saying that we have to earn our salvation by forgiving people? And the answer to that question is clearly no. Jesus was not teaching that we must forgive others in order to be saved. Rather, he was teaching that people who have genuinely received grace are characterized by a willingness to give grace others. Think of it this way. Holding apples in your hands does not make you an apple tree. But it is indeed characteristic of apple trees to bear apples. Forgiving people will not make you a Christian, but Christians do forgive. Or here's another one. Go home after this message tonight and when you're alone, do your best imitation of a duck. Whack, waddle, flap your arms, quack, all of it. And after you've done this, look into a mirror. A spoiler alert, you still won't be a duck, right? On the other hand, ducks do quack. And if you find a creature somewhere that will not quack, then it's extremely likely that this creature is not a duck. Right? Forgiving will not make you a Christian. If you're not already a Christian, you might forgive the worst interpersonal offenses that have ever been committed. But that will get you no closer to being a Christian. However, if someone is a genuine Christian, he or she will be both willing and able to forgive others. There are many stories about people who have demonstrated a remarkable ability to forgive others after becoming Christians. You know, from the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who forgave his executioners in the midst of being killed, to people in recent years that we've read stories about who forgave those guilty of killing family members in bombings and in, and in church and school shootings and in other crimes that have taken place in our country and all around the world. And how could there be a more vivid picture to the world of our Lord Jesus who prayed for our forgiveness while dying for our sins? 
I'd like to conclude tonight. Yeah, it'll be soon, but I had a limited time to get this together, right? So I'd like to conclude with one such story, though, that I read recently about two men who fought in World War II, one for Japan and one for the United States, who both received God's grace and became willing and able to forgive others. Now, to appreciate the story of Jacob DeShazer and Mitsuo Fuchida, we need to reflect on the deep enmity between Japan and the United States during World War II. Now, I was born well afterward, obviously, right? and I never experienced this animosity, but emotions were far different during and immediately after World War II. It's hard to describe the depths of the mutual hatred. About the war in the Pacific, historian Stephen Ambrose said this, it was the worst war that ever was because of the extent of the mutual hatred of the Japanese for the Americans and the Americans for the Japanese. The outrages they committed are surpassed only by the Holocaust. In the Pacific War, both Japanese and Americans did things to each other that are unspeakable. And he listed some, and I left them out because they, they were awful. But Ambrose concluded, only hatred as intense as the heat at the core of an active volcano could have caused that sort of atrocity. Now, nowhere was the deep hatred more evident than for those in Japanese prisoner of war camps. Prisoners were starved and beaten. Their hands were crushed in vices. They were hung by their thumbs. They were buried alive. They were forced to work beyond what any of us could possibly imagine. And Japanese commanders ordered their men that under no circumstances should any of their prisoners survive life in the camp. And now both, both Fuchida and DeShazer were in the thick of all this mutual hostility. Fuchida was actually the combat general officer who gave the final order to bomb Pearl Harbor. And years later, he recounted that at the time of the attack, he said his heart was almost ablaze with joy and that it was the most thrilling exploit of my career. And on the other side of the ocean at that time at an army base in Oregon, Jacob DeShazer was on KP duty when he heard that Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. And he hurled a potato at the wall and he vowed revenge on the attackers. And DeShazer took the first opportunity that came to him to fight against Japan. Four months later, after Pearl Harbor, he served on the crew of one of the bombers in Doolittle's revenge air raid on Tokyo. When the plane he was on ran out of fuel, DeShazer was captured by the Japanese. And he endured 40 horrific months as a prisoner of war. Some of his friends were executed instantly. The rest starved slowly. And he hated the Japanese intensely. Anger ate away at the core of his being. And finally, due in part to the testimony of a Christian POW who had died, DeShazer decided to turn to scripture for answers and listen to his own testimony on what happened. I was gripped with a strange longing to examine the Christian's Bible to see if I could find the secret. I begged my captors to get a Bible for me. 
And at last, in the month of May 1944, a guard brought the book. It told me I could only have it for three weeks. I eagerly began to read its pages. Chapter after chapter gripped my heart. On June 8, 1944, the words, oh, someone's calling us. The words in Romans 10, 9 stood out boldly before my eyes. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In that very moment, God gave me grace to confess my sins to him, and he forgave me all my sins and saved me for Jesus' sake. How my heart rejoiced in my newness of spiritual life, even though my body was suffering so terribly from the physical beatings and lack of food. But suddenly I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the Japanese officers and guards who had starved and beaten me and my companions so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed into loving pity. And at last, on August 20th, 1945, parachutists dropped into the prison camp and freed the prisoners from their cells. And DeShazer was nearly dead physically, but he was a new man spiritually. He returned to the United States. He attended Bible college. And his heart now overflowed with such love that he decided to become a missionary to Japan. He wrote out his story and distributed it in Japan. And one of the people who read it was Mitsuo Fuchida, who was gripped by DeShazer's story. Fuchida wrote, his testimony was something that I could not explain. Neither could I forget it. The peaceful motivation I had read about, I had read about was exactly what I was seeking. And since the American had found it in the Bible, I decided to purchase one for myself, despite my traditionally Buddhist heritage. Fuchida also read the Bible eagerly, and at the crucifixion story, he read Jesus' prayer at his death in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Fuchida said that he was impressed that I was certainly one of those for whom Jesus had prayed. And he too asked for and found forgiveness of his sins and freedom of life in the cross of Jesus. Were it not for Christ, I think only hatred and bitterness would have consumed both of these men. And with Christ, the Japanese officer who gave the final order to bomb Pearl Harbor and a tortured American prisoner of war were filled with love for one another, and Jesus was glorified. Do you find this kind of of beauty in the cross. Do you truly believe what the gospel says about you and over you that you are fully loved, fully forgiven, and fully righteous in Jesus Christ? Do you understand that believing the gospel is not just a one-time mental assent, or the result of a special set of words that you prayed. Believing the gospel means living and acting and choosing and responding each day as if it is real. 
believing it is true requires rehearsing the truths of the gospel every day, several times a day, if you're me. These truths. God is perfect. Jesus lived perfectly for me. He is my righteousness. God loves me. Jesus died for my sins. I am loved and forgiven. God is powerful and mighty. Jesus rose from the dead. I am more than a conqueror in him. God is alive and present with me. He sent his spirit to be with me and in me. I'm not alone or without the power to overcome. God is for me and not against me. These are the truths that we have to remind ourselves daily, over and over. Throughout my day, I have to preach the gospel to myself over and over again. And I don't do it alone. Every day, I have to invite the Holy Spirit to teach me, encourage me, remind me of what is true in Jesus, and correct me and convict me when I'm going the wrong way in my heart and in my mind. We all need the Holy Spirit to remind us of Jesus, of all he is and all that he has done, is doing, and will do, and of who we are in Christ as a result. To remind us that our zillion dollar debt against the King of Kings has been written off at the cross and that we can live in freedom accordingly. If you're someone who says that you cannot or will not forgive, then you should fear for your soul. Saying, I cannot forgive or I will not forgive is essentially another way of saying, I'm thinking about going to hell. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's not forgiving others that saves us or merits our salvation but it's characteristic of those who have received grace that they are willing to share it with others. Quacking doesn't make you a duck, but ducks do quack. Forgiving does not make you a Christian, but Christians do forgive. As we close tonight, I'd like to remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, where the Lord said, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus wants your obedience in forgiveness to others more than he wants your church attendance and participation. And in fact, he tells us plainly to take care of matters of forgiveness before we show up to church, whether you need to seek it or you need to offer it. But thankfully, we also have the words of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah.
God who requires our forgiveness of others will never fail to offer a far greater forgiveness in Christ to those who will repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And if you need to receive his forgiveness or confess your own forgiveness and ask his spirit to give you the strength to obey, then I would invite you to come and pray as we worship the king who forgives tonight. Let's pray together.